Hello and welcome to Unofficial Partner, the sports business podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. The acronym OTT has become ubiquitous in recent years, but what does it really mean? And what are the implications of the decisions being made today by sports organisations, big and small? OTT stands for over the top and refers to the way a streaming service delivers content over the internet. This talks to the broader subject of the options now available to fans beyond the traditional cable TV subscription in a way familiar with services such as Netflix, Spotify or Disney+. It's an appealing idea enabling sports bodies to capture first-party customer data, build competitive tension in the rights market and ultimately make more money. But as we hear from our guests Mike Emery and Murray Barnett, there's no one-size-fits-all solution and there's often a gulf between the idea of going OTT and the reality. Mike Emery is CEO and founder of Joymo.tv, a streaming platform that makes it easy for any sport, club, federation, league and event anywhere in the world to broadcast their valuable content to fans across the globe. And in addition to being a regular panellist on The Bundle, the unofficial partner series on the sports media market, Murray Barnett is director of D2C Sport, specialists in direct-to-consumer media and founder of 26 West Sport, a sports commercial advisory consultancy. This podcast is sponsored by Leaders Week London, which returns at the slightly earlier than usual date of the 26th to the 29th of September 2022. Over 70% of Leaders Week London attendees are at director level or above. From the Premier League to WWE, BT Sport to the DP World Tour. They'll all be there this September. In addition to the talks going on across three stages, there's a networking breakfast, forums, think tanks, tech showcases on the exhibition floor and the list goes on. You can tailor your Leaders Week London experience to best suit you. The two-day Leaders Summit is going to be held at Twickenham Stadium on the 28th and 29th of September. To get 15% discount on those tickets, you can use UP15. Visit leadersinsport.com forward stroke UP for more information. We go to OTT because it's a, it's one of those acronyms that I'm beginning to sort of lose touch with and because it's become ubiquitous. And I'm wondering if we can sort of, we're going to have that conversation in terms of what it is and, and why it's useful when it isn't, all of those sort of questions. Mike, as you can imagine, from my point of view, I get a lot of people coming and saying they're either supplying OTT solutions, which feels like a big sort of, you know, one bucket of, of groups. And then you've got the buyers and sellers on one, you know, on either side of various sizes, various guises. It goes from, you know, your sort of NFL director to, to customer service at one end to a sort of grassroots long tail solution at the other and then everything in between it becomes quite tricky for me and i'm sure you know listeners of unofficial partner over the over the last 3 years to just work out where we are and who does what to who can you just put some detail on that question in terms of the marketplace and how you look at it from joymo's perspective absolutely i can uh, but Truth be told, Richard, I was actually hoping you were going to ask Murray that question so that I could sit back and learn a bit myself. Because I'm not overly interested in defining OTT or 
defining the market of OTT because I I am genuinely as confused as you. I think that there are the, the kind of plumbing companies out there that, that work on end-to-end delivery of video content in with low latency. And then there's the big platforms out there that use those plumbing companies that we see headlined all the time from from in the sports space, the zone and ESPN plus in to the kind of living room space of Disney plus and, and all of those guys. What I consider OTT to be might be a little bit different to a number of other people. I, I, I think it's about D to C or as we say, Joymo direct to fan. So we think it's about developing a a means of communicating within the sports space, a means of communicating what you have to your fan base. And that that can be video, it can be other forms of content like podcasts or or, or written content or whatever it might be. And so, so we at Joymo are much more concerned with what is it you want to say, how do you want to say it, and how are you going to develop this 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 direct to fan communication and story and and platform now and over the next year two years three years and four years so my big call from this from this podcast today is that we actually stop talking about ott i think it's a really uninteresting confusing expression that feels a bit outdated but the upside of it is that it does make me sound quite clever so I present it when I'm at a conference or I'm in a conversation, particularly people who le- know less than I do. And I just throw in OTT as a term. I get all of the sort of reflected glory that comes with that. It feel, <laughs> I feel like a sort of technical sports tech insider that I can then just sort of go around and people say they nod and say, yeah, that guy knows his stuff. Murray, help us out then on the OTT question. I mean, I think I think this is a hopefully in this podcast, we can make you sound even smarter. Because in actual fact, people are conflating two different things. So they say OTT when they mean direct-to-consumer. Um, really, OTT is purely a delivery mechanism. It's effectively you know, cutting out the middleman uh, and going straight to, to consumers. And so technically speaking, the likes of an ESPN Plus are not an OTT service. It's delivered via OTT. It's it's an aggregator. It's an it's aggregating your content. So if you are, you know, pick one example. I don't know Bundesliga, uh, and you are having your content distributed via ESPN in the US. That is not direct to consumer. That is aggregated OTT. So what the much more interesting discussion that we that we have is is about how do rights owners, be them governing bodies or commercial rights owners, actually reach out directly to consumers. And that, and I'm sure we'll go on and talk about this, requires a very, very substantial change in mindset uh, in terms and skill set in terms of how they operate. And, you know, it's funny, when you're out there talking to people, I, I kind of hate myself because I'm having to use the word OTT because that's the word that people understand but knowing that they mean direct to consumer uh, and conversely if if a client is asking you for ott advice you you know that you've got to start with the abc because it means that they really don't know what they're talking about and I, and, I, and i don't mean that to sound sort of negative because obviously we all start from 
from a place of zero knowledge when we when we're first embarking on a, on on something new. But that's kind of the the, the the conflation that people are making is between OTT and D to C. And just to be clear, ABC is not another clever acronym. We we're actually referring to the alphabet there. Which you, and by alphabet, I don't alphabet. mean Google. I mean I mean the uh, the actual alphabet. Um, okay, so when you say you need something different from sports rights holders, because this cut—I mean, again—one of the themes of this podcast over the course of three and a bit years has been how the sort of self-image, or without getting too philosophical, but actually how sports organisations view themselves and look at themselves and talk about themselves. And that shifts and changes. And sometimes it's, okay, we're Amazon today, or we are a retailer, or we're a, you know, a publisher, or we're a media company, we're an entertainment company. What do you mean, Murray, when you say it requires a different skill set for federations and sports rights holders? There's quite a lot to unpick in that. And I would say it kind of falls in sort of two specific areas, which are rights owners are quite schizophrenic. So they often have multiple objectives. So if you take somewhere like, um, you know, World Rugby, uh, where I used to work, it's a federation that is responsible for the rules of the game, but it's also responsible for commercializing the game. It's responsible for growing the game. And that in itself means that they're constantly different things to themselves. And so, you know, there's a lot of hat changing that goes on depending on sort of what day of the week it is or which call you're on and, and so on and so forth. And that in, in itself is quite confusing. You know, conversely, if you are a commercial rights holder, like say a Formula One or an NBA or somebody like that, in some ways it's a little bit easier because you're taking out a lot of the responsibility for growing a game or, or for um, being the home of the rules of the game because you, you're, you have singularity of purpose in terms of looking at commercialization. And I think that that then leads into where the direct consumer sort of element comes in in the sense that you're looking at it through the prism of generating money uh, if you're a commercial rights holder and therefore you're balancing that with your existing media deals um you know we've talked on other podcasts about sort of espn linear versus espn plus and you know the balancing act that they're trying to manage between how they uh, uh, move from let's call it old linear media to, to a, a brave new world of of, uh, of direct to consumer and how it you know number one it's not an either or but there is definitely a sort of a, a balancing act that's required between the two sort of different uh, approaches but fundamentally they all share the same thing which is whether they're commercial rights holders or or whether or whether they're sort of governing bodies is that up until recently they've more or less uh, being B2B businesses that think of themselves as B2C businesses. Uh, so what do I mean by that? Well, if you go to a, a big federation, a, a FIFA, or a, a, um, a World Rugby, a Premier League, or whoever, they'll they'll come out with all those all those lovely stats that we that we hear often about. Oh, I've got a billion fans around the world, uh, and they talk about it very personally. Uh, I've got a billion fans. We are amazing because we are so big. Yet, you know, if you ever said, uh, do you want to invite your billion fans round to a party at your house? Um, <laughs> they don't have a single name or an address of any one of them um, because they've 
they, they sort of proxied that out to uh, broadcasters, sponsors, uh, and, and other commercial parties that have been exploiting their rights. And direct-to-consumer, by its very definition, means that you have to start having a direct relationship with those uh, with those fans, consumers, uh, viewers. And that does require a very different mindset because previously you could argue that a lot of broadcast agreements, if you look at it in a broadcasting context, are sort of fire and forget. You know, Premier League go and do a three-year deal, a six-year deal, or World Rugby or whoever it is, and they only have to talk to maybe a dozen different media organizations, um, do a beauty parade, a tender, whatever it is, and then end up with um, with, with with one partner, usually, that they then uh, uh, call up in two years' time and say, are we going to renew? Whereas if you're doing direct-to-consumer, those billion fans, you have to have a unique relationship with each and, each and every single one of them. Uh, and that requires a very different mindset and skill set inside those organizations sorry that was a long kind of uh, yeah no it's a nice framing though mike just i wonder if you could pick up on a couple of things there that i mean i've got a couple of questions that come off that but um one is can they do it all you know that there is that where do you is the opportunity cost question and, and whether this is you know, of a, of a federation and we hear, and Murray's right in that they do talk about a very broad game. And sometimes I think, well, strategy is, is about where the edges of these things are. And, and sometimes it's almost limitless, it feels. So there's that, there's that bit. If they're employing one of the plumbers, as you described them, are they not just proxying out that relationship to them? Or is it, am I simplifying that? I think those are two really good questions, and and they are, uh, yeah, intrinsically linked, right? So can, can they do it all? Talks to the skill set point that Murray was talking about, and it makes me think of that quote from Field of Dreams, right? So if you build it, they will come, and and if you if you use that expression, then you have the OTT to D two C problem, because the plumbers they they build it, right? Like the OTT is there for you, you know go ahead now and do what you want with it. But the reality is the, the the reason why you have an OTT is to go D to C. And now you need to be really good at going to get the fans. You need to bring the audience to you. And that remains or is a big problem for a lot of governing bodies, not because of a lack of desire to do it or a lack of will to do it, but because as Murray says, they've got an awful lot of other things going on, and the skill set associated with bringing in viewers, uh, reducing the churn on consumers, i.e. you're giving them an experience that they want, they're happy with it, they keep coming back, they're getting what they need from you as, as, a, as a rights owner delivering your content direct to fans, is extremely challenging. And so that's where organizations and companies such as ours look less to the plumbing, although we do it, and more to the, what are our targets for consumers? What do they want? And how are we going to build this over time? Um, so going to a plumber doesn't proxy out that relationship. It gives you the, it builds you the arena, but does nothing to give you the fans. And so that, you know, no, I, I'm, you know, the big, big, Big governing bodies like the Premier League and Six Nations and all those all those guys at the top. I, I'm not really talking about them right now. I'm talking about, you know, 
the British rowings or the British cyclings or um, the England table tennises and the Irish basketballs, those organizations have a good fan base, but maybe need support to get to them and reward them with what they're looking for. Yeah. Just to follow on that, is the plumbing from a, if you look at it back from from the uh, the industry perspective, is that a commodity item? Is that something that in that marketplace, I'm always wondering. I'm always wondering whether or not there's any difference between one OTT service and another and another. Um, so, is it difficult to sort of differentiate if you're in that world? To say our one is better than the bloke next door, the, ne- the next person coming in to pitch to you, our one's better because of A, B, and C. There's a brand issue there. There's a size issue, presumably, but there's also a, you know, f- but fundamentally, if I'm a client, I'm thinking I'm trying to work out the difference between these. So there's that. The other bit is let's let's just talk to that for a minute. I don't want to throw in loads of questions. Murray, what do you think about that? Is there a, is there a is there a difference between fundamentally? between the different services i mean all plumbers are plumbers right uh, and you uh, they offer you different things that some have ultimately ultimately i do think we're all plumbers <laughs> so i'm not using it as a derogatory term and by the way i would love to be a plumber because they make shed loads of money but so we'll, we'll you know we'll, we'll deal with that but yes well, i mean to, to sort of keep that analogy going I, I think you have slightly different people plumbers that you might go to for slightly different jobs um, you also find the ones that you're comfortable with. You, you you find the ones that you that you think are most responsive to your particular needs. Uh, and some people will go for uh, somebody that's going to put in an infrastructure for them that's going to last a, a long period of time. Others are saying, I just want the cheapest solution. Some people are saying, I need something that's flexible because I'm not sure if the boiler that I'm installing today is the same one that I'm going to want in five years' time. And so, you know, I'm not being facetious. I actually think the analogy is quite a good one in the sense that all of the providers of support in a in a in a OTT media space are, are largely uh, offering the same product, but they're doing it with slightly different bells and whistles according to what your needs are. Okay, so there's a Mike. Do you agree with that broadly? Yeah, broadly speaking, I do. Yeah, it's about uh, different services and 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 uh, reliability to platform and stuff. But a, a lot of a lot of a lot of these companies are building and have built on on similar architecture and 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 similar products. And is it easy to switch from one to another? Again, one again, if I'm the client, if I'm a big right or a small rights holder, I'm thinking I'm worried about getting into bed with ABC because. I'm going to get stuck with their specific, they've sold it as bespoke, but actually what it means is that I'm trapped two years down the road to, to stay there. It's, that's a good question, right? I, I would say it's, it's never easy to, to shift IT services, right? So if you're shifting from one email provider to another email provider or one um, cloud um, service to another cloud service, it's not entirely without pain. Um. But it, it's a lot easier if in the agreements that you've signed with your service provider in this field, you're owning and protecting certain things for your organization. You used the term commodity a second ago. And I, I, I love that because it, it, re, it pushed me to think about the reason why you do lots of this is data. And that's an anti-commodity, right? 
what I mean by that is, you know, the more you have, the more valuable it is. But that's not the case with diamonds, right? If if diamonds were everywhere, then we'd be using them for building roads, right? Uh, so data is an anti-commodity. And then you want to get as much of it as possible because the more you have, the more valuable it is. You're able to do more things with it. You're able to uh, build more consumer experience around it. Now, if you've signed up with the wrong uh, service provider in OTT and you've given up certain rights to data, then it is super hard to move from one to another. And what I see is that decisions can take a long time within governing bodies for, for, for reasons that we know. And it's not, it's not a criticism. They've got a lot to do and a lot on their plate. But as soon as gambling companies enter into this, in, into this scope, decisions are made super quick and too quickly, giving up an, uh, data too quickly. And I fear for those organizations that have done that because I fear that when they do want to change plumbing company, they're going to find it a bit tricky. Yeah, I think it also tends to be that the cheaper the solution, the more inflexible it is. And so a lot of the time, you know, I found that companies that are sort of promising to do stuff, you know, quote unquote, for free or very low cost, then that means you end up with very little flexibility in terms of your ability to move from one one place to another. And, you know, as you can imagine, the, the, the smaller federations or the smaller rights holders tend to be the ones that are more susceptible to this, where sort of ironically, they, they need the more bespoke situation because they need that that, that data to better understand um, their their sort of um, potential, if you like, in terms of, you know, who who and how they can reach. I, I mean, I, I think just one, one sort of add-on that I wanted to make was that also direct-to-consumer OTT is not a replacement necessarily for your existing sort of traditional media rights deals. And I'm sure we'll go on to talk about this. It it can be something which is either a needs must situation. You know, you are the World Tiddlywinks Federation and you can't get on TV. So you need to find a way to meet to reach your consumers. And by the way, YouTube isn't always the answer. And then or, or you're a bigger rights holder that might say, actually, you know what, I want to offer a different product to my hardcore fans that I offer to a more general fan. And that's where you end up with, you know, an NBA league pass type service where, where you also have a bunch of NBA games appearing on traditional linear media. So it's not an either or situation. So when you're looking at, again, we bracket rights holders as a sort of homogenous group. And I've just, as you were talking, I was thinking, well, actually, the different ways in which you could start to sort of uh, break those down. There could be the sort of the, the lens of of big or small, you know, national or global, but there's also public and private, you know, or proxies to those in terms of you've got, we had the FA on talking about, you know, a digital program. I think it's third in 10 years or or whatever. So it's, again, it talks to that, point that Mike was making there about IT is always difficult. You know, it's never as straightforward as it sounds. But are there different objectives? Let's take that lens of a Formula One versus a world rugby. They do have, there's a commercial agenda at the centre of both of them, but there's also on the rugby side, 
like the FA, there is just a broader community rights holder thing going on there. Well, I mean, maybe a better analogy, because it's sort of already out there, is F1 TV versus FIFA Plus. When you, when you look yeah. at FIFA Plus, it's free behind uh, registration, and they claim that it's going to be underwritten by their commercial partners, their sponsor partners, eventually. And within that, you can get a plethora of different leagues from around the world. You can get archive of FIFA, uh, previous FIFA tournaments. You can get bespoke documentaries that they've created. And that is because, at its essence, their, their goal is to be the one-stop shop for football content in the world, but also that they are, you know, uh, evangelizing about the sport, if you like. Of course, when you go on there, you're not going to find Premier League, but you might find sort of Angolan second division or something like that, which by definition is available because it's not currently getting uh, a, um, uh, any sort of coverage outside of its core market. And I don't mean that to sound sort of derogatory to FIFA because they are investing money in covering certain leagues that are not currently covered in order to be able to sort of promote them a, a little bit more. And um, so I think that that's a, that's a good thing. Whereas, you know, on the other hand, if you look at F1 TV, that is both a offensive and defensive strategy to, to use an Americanism. It's offensive in the sense that uh, in markets where they have suboptimal deals, they're able to uh, take a different tack and try and reach their audience directly. And it's... Um, also designed to offer a, a, a viable alternative to the current broadcast that deals that they have in certain markets to create competitive tension. Um, so the best scenario for them, for example, is an F1 TV in the US is currently available to anybody at the same time as also having all the races broadcast on, on ESPN. So you're basically saying you don't have to go to an aggregator if you don't want to. You can come straight to F1 TV and just get that if you want, along with some other content that you perhaps wouldn't get on TV. So that's the, the, the prime scenario. I think in the case of F1 TV, their desire to have data about the, their, their consumers is probably secondary to making sure that they have a comprehensive media strategy. And that's because ultimately they still think that the best way to monetize the sport is to do a, a mixture of traditional media and then using the OTT as a way to sort of future-proof themselves, but also create that competitive tension. Um, with with, with um, FIFA Plus, I, I think I said it was behind a registration. It's not even behind a registration, which I found a bit strange because there they're not getting any information. They are basically just offering it uh, to anybody that wants to come to FIFA, fifaplus.com or, or whatever the URL is. And I find that very strange because the very least you'd think that they would want to get some data about who's interested in them, being able to track them a little bit and so on and so forth. So, sorry, I'm rambling a little bit, but there's kind of, sort of two quite distinct motives behind the reasons why you do it. So, the, the uh, Mike, I'll bring you in here, is, is on that competitive tension question. That's a bit like, I always think it's a bit like a sort of nuclear weapon, you know, or threatening your kids with not having pizza tonight it's always you have to 
be willing to follow through on that threat, <laughs> regardless of whether it's you actually that wants to be. In that I mean, there are there are but, examples of this. So the Israeli league went very far down the road of creating their own OTT in Israel because they were not getting the fees that they wanted from their incumbent uh, broadcaster, uh, Carlton, uh, Charlton, sorry. And um, in the end, Charlton came to the table with a much improved offer at the 11th hour. So if you are creating an OTT service for, to create competitive tension, you have to go ahead and do it. You can't pretend that you're going to do it because you'll get found out very quickly. That's right. I think, we, Richard, I, I want to talk to you later about your household, that you're likening not having pizza to nuclear war. So uh, you're poor. Yeah, <laughs> quite, quite well, you know, I think it's a, it's a completely sensible analogy. Uh, bang on point. Um, I think that this is really interesting, right? So, uh, so... OTT and, and direct-to-consumer kind of strategies that governing bodies can and should employ, uh, if they're done right and they're done with a, with a little bit of a long-sighted perspective on it, then the data capture that they have and the learnings that they have are ultimately going to enable them to be much more powerful when it comes to having conversations about uh, around rights. But, but there, there is an expectation that all of this should happen immediately, that it happens really quickly. And, and that, that's, that doesn't work, right? So a good example, I won't name the governing body because it, it's not my position to name, but they wanted to create an OTT platform or a D2C platform. And they said to their, all, their, all their members, we're going to do that. And they had something like 10,000 complaints. And then they, they panicked. I thought, oh, my God, we can't do that. So then they instead they did a deal with Eurosport and a deal with Dentsu, and they breathed a big sigh of relief because no one was shouting at them. What they should have done is realize, hang on a second, we've got 10,000 passionate enough people to complain. So if we do this right, I mean, if you think of all the people that don't complain, then their audience is massive, and they could have done something really exciting. They didn't. They panicked. They shifted off their rights really cheaply to do two different rights buyers. And, and, and then relax. Now they're looking at OTT again, realizing the mistake that they made. But right when they're about to make this decision, uh, another very big rights uh, uh, acquirer, IMG, flew in and said, no, we want it. And then, they, then they, they didn't go to E2C themselves and they just did the next deal available to them. And I, I kind of sit, sit, sat back looking at that thinking, oh, what a shame. What a shame. Because if they had done that original decision to do their D2C, that conversation with IMG could have looked very different. And that would have potentially been tremendously powerful for their sport in terms of revenue generation possibilities and so on. So to go to Murray's point, yeah, this isn't about not selling rights. And this isn't about not linear or, or OTT. But, but OTT can really, really help these governing bodies understand their fan base, understand their data and better position them for making really good decisions on rights deals or, or linear deals. So just to follow up on that, um, I'm going to make the broader point that I am older than I look. So therefore, I remember talking, and this is 20-something years ago, to Bill Sinrich, the late Bill Sinrich, who was in charge of TWI at that point. So when, at the point where it was IMG TWI. So, you know, a big player in broadcast media. And we were talking about the long tail. And it's obviously, the, and I think the context was squash. It was always squash in the early days of this conversation. But 
it was either squash or badminton and and we know these arguments that you know this is the other route and it's the you know dispersed audiences wherever they are and this works whether it's a spurs fan or a you know a latent orient fan or a badminton player or whatever it is mike tell us where are we in this argument because again i make the point that it was a very long time ago relative to you know we've been through since that conversation with bill sinrich we've been through facebook twitter we're now into tiktok where the that has migrated onto the big tech platforms and now we're sort of the argument is no we need to come back off those tech platforms we now size off we get we've been just generating content for those tech platforms they've monetized it and therefore we need to get it back home and play the long tail on our own terms essentially as a sort of rough framing of it where are we in this argument do you think i started using the expression long tail uh, a couple of years ago and, and truth be told i had no idea what it meant and i'm not entirely sure i know what it means today either and for some people it means grassroots and for some people it means just smaller sports i i don't know and i'm not sure it it's worth defining either i i, I think that what we look at at Joymo is is kind of under commercialized sport or 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 sport that um is underserved by the big tech platforms that exist today so where we are as a business and where i think the market is as a business is a, uh, the market is generally is a realization and murray mentioned this about 20 minutes ago and we we're finally catching up with him here is that is that youtube is not the answer if you're taking a long term perspective on how you want to communicate to your fans and broadcast your sport um there's there's a number of examples particularly in the area of cricket where there's big numbers being delivered on youtube and lots of production value being taken by the sport to delivering it to youtube the ie the sport is paying for the creation of this content delivering it to youtube and the sport is sat there thinking well thank you very much for our for our $8000 check at the end of the year i mean goodness i mean that that is an unsustainable model for commercialization particularly if you're the one carrying the cost of that production so i believe and there are others that believe this with me within this space that a sustainable model for long tail in all of its guises is to start taking a far greater ownership over yes streaming is a, is a part of this but over your dialogue or their dialogue rather with their fan base and critically and this is where it's often this is often ignored with with uh, DTC the members right so let's take tennis as an example in the UK god knows how many hundreds of thousands of members if good DTC should recognize that these members exist and expect something different from a fan base and good DTC should have products and services directed and engineered towards members that that should be looked after that should not be fleeced for money versus fans that are coming to consume the sport for very different reasons um 
So I don't know if I fully answered your question, Richard. But well, I think that there's a there's a yeah, Murray, go on. I think we're getting into like so many different uh, areas. I'm conscious that we don't want to turn this into a sort of a four hour epic podcast, but there is there's there's Mike just touched upon this audience segmentation, if you like. So, you know, one of the things that Mike and I were talking about yesterday was this idea of segmentation. So, if you think of, you know, having a, a fan that is eight, nine, ten out of ten interested in a sport, and a, a more casual fan that's five, six, seven out of ten interested in a sport, you're going to need to service them in different ways. And so. You know, somebody that's a super fan is willing to pay £10 a month or whatever the fee is to, to get absolutely all you can eat around a particular sport, whereas somebody else may not be willing to pay quite as much or, or have quite as much focus on a sport because they're a little bit more of a casual fan. And going back to this point about sort of YouTube, it's I'm not advocating that you don't do anything on YouTube, but you don't put all of your eggs in the YouTube basket, as it were. You know, it's important that you use all of the different avenues that there that there are because you re- you need discoverability. Because by definition, if you are a single sport service, that you're only ever going to go there if you are a big fan. So in, let, let's take Formula One as an example. Only an avid is going to subscribe to Formula One TV. Therefore, it's important that Formula One itself is also putting content onto other platforms, be that a YouTube, be that a TikTok, be that broadcast uh, broadcast channels, which they get money for. Um, so it's a very long-winded way of saying it was great in the old days where you just, you know, you, you filmed the race or you filmed the match and uh, that you had a, 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 a Sky or another aggregator saying, we'll do that for you and we'll put it out. And uh, that's nice and simple. Now you're having to create content for all these different audiences and all these different platforms. And it becomes a very complex matrix to work out how you make that content sweat for you. Because the other key thing is you have to create bespoke content for each platform. Because by definition, if you're going to maximize the audience, it needs to work for that platform. We all saw in the early days of, you know, mobile that, that you know, you'd see goals cut off on the edges because mm. they were just taking a broadcast feed and hadn't thought about if you were watching it portrait rather than landscape and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So there's a, it goes back to this earlier point about needing a different mindset and a different skill set. It's much, much more complex. And then that you you layer on that data piece as well. That data piece is both uh, informing you in real time what the content is that you're creating is which of the content you're creating is working, but it's also uh, helping you work out where you should be serving that content to based on that level of fandom and where those platforms sit. So that's quite a lot to unpick, but I, I yeah, there's a there's a. I mean, you've, again, you you we're sort of hitting on a few things there in terms of. There is the can they do it all question. As this marketplace becomes more complex, more platforms, more different things, can they do it all? Is it, this is just a you know without building up an, a, a the the PowerPoint deck for an agency? This is primed for third parties to come, vendors to come in and say, look, we will take this pain off off you. Um, Mike, yeah. what do you think? I, I I agree with you, and and I I think that. If I was at a governing body and I was looking to do a D2C OTT strategy, I would be looking for the, the company that delivered both the product, the, the plumbing piece, 
and the agency piece to help them deliver on their goals, right? And also maybe backtrack one step and say, well, why are we doing this? What is the purpose behind doing this? And, and then you build your goals from that. And then you find your provider that can deliver both the product to deliver on those goals with the consultative advice on what you should do when, what strings to pull when. And this is the big misstep that many took within D2C OTT about, let's say, five, six years ago. They put the plumbing in place, the rigging. They never really worked out why. And then they had no KPIs. And then they sat there wondering why it's not working. Uh, and so our approach as a business, and there's a couple of others in this market that are good at this as well, is to say, let's build this together over the long term. And we are your, we are your think of us as your in-house agency on D2C. I, I love that. I, I mean, I think that whole clarity of purpose thing is the number one problem that most federations or rights holders face is that they're not very clear with themselves about why they're doing this or what they want to achieve because they're either doing it out of fear that they have to do it because everybody else is doing it um, or uh, they're worried or they see it as a massive pot of gold um, because they've done a back of a fag packet analysis that says I've got a billion fans and if they all paid £10 a month, well, hey, I'm, I'm in the money. Um, but it, it, does, it just doesn't work that way. So, you know, when we talk to people about their D2C strategy or, or their D2C media strategy, I should say, a lot of it is, is trying to extract that clarity of purpose at the, at the beginning. You know, what are your objectives? What does what do the KPIs look like or what does success look like? And then starting with that as a base for then building out what, what it should look like and, and what plumbing they need. Because, you know, if you don't know, if you don't know, uh, you know, if you're putting whatever it is, liquid lead through your pipes, you're going to build the pipes quite differently. Uh, not only that, you know, does Mrs. Gillis... Does she like super hot water or is she actually a, cow, a cold shower person? And does she oscillate between the two? Because all of those are factors. She never, never washes. Plumbing. <laughs> she just likes plumbers, I think. There's a, there's a um, mission creep is a problem. As in, once you put these things in, you can do so many different things. And it's a strong CEO or chief direct, digital director, whatever the, wherever the the point wherever the, they are in the organization to say, no, we're not going to do that. It's really hard to say, no, I don't want X hundreds of thousands of engagement metrics because we're following this strategy and strategy can, when it's a winning strategy, there's a halo around it. And, and actually um, I, real life gets in the way, I think um, of those types of things, but which the other bit to it, I think is, when you throw this over into what let's define them as the sort of the 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 broader governing body model there is an incentive in the marketplace for them to claim all sorts of numbers because that's how they're rewarded by the central you know by government and by other areas so when you're looking at things like long tail I always think of, I mean, the park run is the, the obvious example. It sort of grew. We're in a running boom, but that had not much to do with UK Athletics' digital strategy, I would argue. I think that's just, it's, it's just blossomed. And now 
if I was in charge of UK Athletics, I would go claim those numbers as mine and say, look, there's a boom going on and we are UK Athletics. Come and give us a load of cash, please, Sport England. So there's that. And, you know, Sean goes wild swimming, but I'm, I'm, I remain convinced that it wasn't British swimming that, that was the, uh, was the uh, sort of reason behind that. But there's a, all of that with, when you throw in OTT as defined with the long tail, you're starting to see, okay, there are so many different conflicting objectives. It's, it's very easy to start to see huge creep taking place. Well, I mean, it always makes me think of the, you know, the X-Wings uh, trying, to, trying to shoot the photon into the Death Star. It's all about trying to sort of stay on target and, and, and be very clear about your mission. But, you know, to, to your earlier point, I'm not sure it really matters whether um, you, British Swimming uh, wants to take credit for world swimming or not. It's, it's actually, the, the bigger question should be, they see a boom in wild swimming. What are British Swimming doing to exploit that? Especially when you think about uh, their, their different media uh, opportunities and, and how can they take advantage of this upswing um, and whether they're responsible for it or not is, is kind of a little bit irrelevant. Mike? Yeah, I um, I agree with you on this mission creep thing. I do. I, I think that there is a temptation within governing bodies to also overcomplicate this decision a little bit and think, oh, you know, before we decide on D2C, uh, D2C development and OTG development, whatever we define it, we, we now need to sit down and create a 10-year plan for our organization. And they kind of, they, they, <laughs> to, to, to kind of com- contradict myself slightly, I said the problem historically has been, uh, you know, if you build it, they will come kind of mentality. There is also something that says, look, the KPIs around this, the desire around this, it, it's not it's not a 10 page, 20 page document. It's sitting down. It's working out quite simply what you'd like to achieve with uh, people like Murray or, or others in the space and then setting in motion with the right partner and iterating as you learn, because a lot of the problem is decisions are being taken without data behind them, without customer customer kind of user data behind. So start, learn, iterate, that's fine. You don't, you know, as long as you've got the right partner, it's okay to have that approach. Uh, and it's, I would say it's more harmful to not, to, to do nothing. And to think, no, we're going to do, we're going to come to this in 18 months time because we're trying to, data is kind of the new oil, everyone's saying it, and it is a slow process. You have to dig down to get it. You have to bring that stuff up. And so this, this kind of data mining, this understanding your data as a governing body needs to start somewhere. And maybe, maybe just don't think too heavily about NFTs for a little while. Maybe think of a long-term strategy on that who is our customer? Why are they with us? And how are we going to take them on a journey with us? And if you go down that approach, you would think, actually, you know, let's just drop the NFT dialogue for a little while. So it's amazing how quickly people can react when they, when they, when NFTs are discussed, right? But, um, there's a, it's interesting you said, and just the, which is linked to that, which is the, the quality question about what it looks like when it comes onto my screen when I'm sitting in front of what is now a telly, you know, YouTube is effectively a television channel. And production quality, without getting too sort of in the weeds, I think there is a, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a, um, I'm addicted to TikTok 
club cricket feeds and you know really blokes in their back garden doing golf sort of uh instruction and the quality is low but it's fine because it's i i come with that once it goes to the big screen i get a bit okay well i am now watching a bloke with a doing it on his phone which i can sustain for a short period of time but there is a there is a as you evolve this thing and if the long tail means anything it needs to be able to be of a certain quality which does then raise the cost we had um Seb Carmichael Brown on the other day on the podcast talking about the cost now of being a creator you know an influencer on on and he was talking about it in an esport environment where million dollar budgets are being spent on the quality of of the you know the production how is that going to be how do we get through that because is 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 this is a plumbing issue but it's a question of there's a sort of image and integrity of the quality of the product in in there as well absolutely and a lot of governing bodies go to the same the, the same problem that you're discussing okay that they want to go d to c but the quality of the content that they feel that they can create uh is not worth it to build it to build a platform around and <clears throat> so one and very often I get into conversations where where people start talking to me about you know they see me as a as a broadcasting solution like a like you know are you going to come in and film versus a let's build a fan experience type of service it is an issue now one I think that there there is funding in governing bodies to, to create more content it, it it comes down from the top and there should be more of it because the more content that's created by the sport the more people are likely to get excited by that sport and want to get into that sport. And ultimately, over time, it'll boost participation numbers. So the money coming down from Sport England and so on and so forth, there should be there should be more money for creating good content. Secondly, I'm having a number of conversations with a number of governing bodies that are thinking, well, if we increase our membership fee slightly, then we actually start to create our own broadcast budget and we can create lots more content for our members, which is something that they want. So why... What services should we give members in our governing body? And one of the things that members are looking for is the opportunity to watch lots more of this content, be it cycling or be it table tennis or be it bit badminton, whatever it might be. So another way to get more money to create content through, through the members that you have. Then thirdly, on the tech side, you know, app technology is getting better. You can, you can create better content through apps automated broadcasting technology is getting better you can create more content through through fixed installed cameras um and also there are great companies out there that like that want to create content for you uh, and the cost of that is is going down generally because the cost of data is going down so um you're right broadcast so content development strategy does need to be thought about when you are thinking about direct to consumer strategy Okay. I think we're we're there. We haven't we've we've covered a lot of ground. Have we missed anything? I th- I think you're only sort of scratching the surface frankly. I think we could there's a lot more to sort of go into. I think you know the whole argument about audience segmentation and content strategies are both really super important and and probably require a lot more uh, depth of discussion if you like. I mean I think if I was to sort of wrap it up in one thing is that 
I think you have to have a real clarity of purpose about what you are doing with uh, direct-to-consumer media. Uh, and by the way, I keep saying direct-to-consumer media because direct-to-consumer isn't just about media. I mean, there's other elements to direct-to-consumer. But the more that people start using the right terminology and not just calling it OTT, they'll understand what it really is. And uh, and hopefully that will sort of shape better the thinking that goes on about it. I sometimes think, you know, when you talk to people who are in marketing outside of sport, they've all got the D to C challenge. They all know that they've got to get around the wall gardens and the various thing, you know, all the cliches and they need to, you know, if you're a beer brand, I remember working with a, with a beer brand who have, you know, the new CMO came in and said, right, our new object, the, the one objective is to go from 200,000 direct subscribers to 10 million or, you know, within a year, whatever it was. I sometimes think that sport, because it's overloaded with video and content, lean that becomes almost shapes the conversation in a way. In that, if you haven't got video and you haven't got all of this compelling stuff that people will watch, then you would focus on the customer more, you know, D to C. And sometimes I don't, it's not a content solution that I want. It's something I think else. There's, there's a couple of things there. Firstly, we talk about sport as this homogenous, generic thing. And in actual fact, the needs of each of the individual sports or, or governing bodies or rights holders is, is, complete, is, is or are completely different. So that's one aspect to it. The other is the live nature of sport means that you don't have the ability to sort of, sort of tinker with it. You, you know you've got a live event coming next month and you've got to get it out there. And I think that that... The challenge becomes how do you sort of build a plane while you're trying to take off and don't spend too much time uh, worrying about whether it's perfect to start with. I think you should start your direct-to-consumer strategy, media strategy today and iterate it as you go along and, and learn from the mistakes that you make. Because if you wait for it to be fully formed, if you wait for your copper pipe to plumbing to sort of all work properly when you first turn the tap on, you'll be disappointed because there'll always be flaws to it what you want to do is you want to build a little bit turn the tap on see if there's any leaks build a little bit more add a bit more hot water etc etc and you know yeah. otherwise uh, otherwise you, you just end up sort of chasing chasing the wrong you know chasing perfection which you're not going to be able to get to as a heroic extension of the plumbing metaphor. Yeah, we, we, we can stretch this out for hours. The plumbing. <laughs> I think that there is, uh, unfortunately, probably because of, because of things that have happened in the past, there is genuinely within a lot of sports organizations a, a, a fear of making a mistake. Um, and that then governs a lot of decisions, right? So like the old adage, you, no one gets fired for hiring IBM. Uh, for, uh, yeah, for buying IBM, no, no one currently in sport is getting fired for you know sticking stuff out on YouTube and 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 then giving up that data and 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 then then and then wondering why they're not able to grow the participation numbers in their sport and and so on and so forth. So um, we it would be nice if there was a if there was a way in which we could reduce the fear factor behind making a D to C strategy and making a D2C conscientious approach. And the way to do that is to work with companies that, that, are, that are value propositions aligned 
and they're saying some of the most important stuff, which is, guys, it's your content. Guys, it's, you know, it's your data. And let's figure out how to do this with you. So the, the, the way around that, presumably on a practical level, would be, so the, the, the fear, if you unpick that and you're right, if you unpick it, it's, it's fear of spending too much money or wasting money, particularly if it's public money, but any money. There's also a rep- personal reputation. I don't want to be the person that made the mistake in public. The the re, the answer to that is, you know, is third parties. That's I will get them in. If it mucks up, I will blame them. That's 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 inherent within that relationship. That's that's what consultancies and agencies have always a part of the reason that you're paying for the for that service is that you are going to be the full guy yeah. when it. I mean, fucks yes, up. in a sense, but also there, there has to be a degree of humility here, right? These agencies are an awful lot better at this than you are, Governing Body X. Similarly, Governing Body X, you are much better at putting on these events and building these, these, this sport than that agency is. So let's, let's reflect upon the fact that we all have our strengths in this space and, and, let's, and let's work together based on that proposition rather than <laughs> if it goes wrong, you're out the door kind of thing. Uh, but you're right. That is a protection mechanism, of course. I think that um one of the thing that most governing bodies are uh, concerned with and they are right to be concerned with is um let, what about our members are we you know we don't want to lose our 50,000 members our 500,000 members so then good d2c needs needs to first and foremost take into account who they are and what they're looking for because if because if you alienate your members you alienate a lot of money right those are the people paying to be participating in your sport. So, so yeah, I think that, that, that there's a fear of going D to C and commercializing your sport is going to in some way conflict with your membership strategies and it shouldn't, it should complement. Okay. What I think we should do is reconvene and we'll, 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 there are so many bits that we've covered here and it was always going to be intentionally a, a broad sort of uh, scope we don't be now a few rabbit holes but there is this is so central to everything you know so that this bit of the conversation because it's so current it's on everyone's mind but it also leads to so many other questions inevitably and back to the point of fear that's why people aren't doing it in the way that they maybe should be doing it is because it just uncovers all sorts of issues and challenges i think i think it's sort of once you start to ask these questions, there's some other uncomfortable questions further down the road. And if I'm in charge, I think sod that for a lark. I, we, we, you know, I'm not going to open that can of words because, you know, I, I've got a job to protect. So that's there's a bit of that. I always go to the personal incentives on these things. And I always think that if I was in, I'm basically a coward and I would sort of not want to uh, to to be too aggressive in this this area. So I think there is a inertia and a resistance there which is real um and understandable actually but listen mike thank you very much for your time really enjoyed that thank you thanks very much it was nice to be invited on murray barnett nice to see you again and you know out of your your existence on the bundle which uh it's it's liberated you it's freed you from well the i feel like we've only just warmed up on this conversation i'm gonna to have to give michael a call and have a a, a three-hour follow-on i think okay 10%, that's, that's our normal rate. But anyway, 
Speak soon both. Thanks for having me. 